The scripture reading for this morning comes from Colossians 2, 1 through 7. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight and see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. Glad that you can be here. My name is Jonathan. Get to serve as a pastor of our church. Uh, We are in a series that we have entitled, All Things Hold Together. Today we're looking at the theme from chapter 2, Continue in Him. Sometimes we assume that we begin in Christ, but then we finish in our own effort. Paul's going to undermine that, and I'm going to get into that in detail. But let me just take you to a little bit of review of where we've been. A young church in modern-day Turkey was facing very real cultural pressures of conformity to the vision and to the values of the empire and to its Caesar. They were confronted with political and social views that undermined their allegiance to Jesus as king. And then this little church is being infiltrated by religious influencers. We're not exactly sure if they were Jewish or if they are Gnostic who are asserting that Christians needed higher, better, bigger spiritual experiences in order to have the assurance that they were loved by God, better knowledge in order to have an assurance that they were saved. And so in reality, unity is at stake. And fractures in unity cause deep fractures in churches and in communities. And this is Paul who is writing from prison, very important detail. He's never, he's never visited Colossae, but he is writing to them from prison He is working so hard. What does he say? Quote, contending for you and for those at Laodicea and really for any believer who had never met Paul. Any of you ever met the Apostle Paul? No. So he's actually contending for you as well. You're included in this prayer and in this text. He's working hard to strengthen, encourage the churches so that no one would be deceived by fine sounding deceptive arguments. Deception is is easy because it sounds like the truth. It looks like the truth, but it's not the gospel. We will get into more of that next week, but we'll start that here. So three things I'm going to take you through. Number one, foundations. Number two, reflexes. And number three, treasures. Okay, so the foundations that Paul's going to take them back to, the reflexes that our heart naturally gravitate toward, and then how do we treasure the gospel and treasure Christ. Look at verse six under point one. Verse six says, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
This summer, our family had the privilege of taking a sabbatical. We went back to North Carolina where we've got some southern roots. We got to go back and spend some time with our families. And we thought about going to other parts of the world. But as we talked to people who had taken sabbaticals, we heard that spending time with people who were going to fill your tank, people who have been around you, the longest they've been since they've been with you since the beginning of your story, maybe people who you would laugh the most naturally around is who you need to spend some time with, not to mention some of mama and mama-in-law's good Southern cooking. So we went back to our foundations. We went back to our roots. And this is what Paul is doing in Colossians. He is taking the Colossians back to their foundations. He's taking them back to their roots. Look at verse six. Verse six says, just as you received Christ, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up. Couple things to remember. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul actually started a discipleship school in the city of Ephesus in the lecture hall of this guy named Tyrannus. Remember that the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, he would preach the gospel in cities and he would explain the person of Jesus Christ. He was rejected in Ephesus, so he kind of moves out of the center of the city. He starts a discipleship school in the hall of Tyrannus. Acts chapter 19 tells us that it lasts for two years. For two years, the Apostle Paul is teaching, discipling, forming people in the gospel. The, the detail that we are given in Acts 19 says that in that two-year period, all of the Christians, all of the Jews and all of the Greeks, all of the people all over the region of Asia, basically everyone had a chance to hear the gospel. And scholars think that one of the people who was transformed, who were transformed under the ministry of the Apostle Paul and converted, was this man by the name of Epaphras. We're introduced to Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1, who get referenced a little bit later as well, but they think that it was Epaphras, who took the gospel back to this little backwater village in the Lycus River Valley, outside of Ephesus by about 80 miles, the gospel spreads and a church is birthed. But let's ask this question. What did those first Christians in Colossae receive from Epaphras? Like here's a dude who's just minding his own business. He knows nothing about Jesus Christ. He comes under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. He spends time in the halls of Tyrannus. We don't know how long he's there. Something radicalizes his heart for Jesus. He makes the 80 mile or so journey back to his home village and he shows up and he says, what? What's he do? What does it look like to receive the news about Jesus Christ? These men and women, they had never heard of him. They knew nothing about the person, the work, the ministry, the death, the resurrection. And so when Epaphras comes into their village, what they received was an announcement. Simple. They received news about Jesus as king, all right? And the news would have sounded something like this, like Jack Miller's mantra. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And they would have said, what? Why? And he would have said, because of what Jesus has accomplished in his perfect life, his willing death in your place, and his glorious resurrection that confirms that the whole story is true. Christianity begins with an announcement. 
Epaphras did not go to the city gate and he said, I'll take the smartest, the brightest, the best, the most athletic, those who are the most successful, those who've got a lot of money, those who have a big CV, those who went to incredible schools. Uh, I'll take the people who are gifted. Come to me, I've got something to say to you. That's not how the gospel works. He simply would have said, look, I know this sounds crazy, but I need to tell you something about a man. He died for you. His name is Jesus Christ. They say he was more than a man. They say he was a son of God. And if the story's true, then all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your condemnation, all of it's been paid for in him. You can go free because he was condemned. You are accepted because he was rejected. He would have explained the gospel to them. And see, the reality is, if you are at the mercy of somebody else, then you can't dictate the message. You are at their mercy if you have been received and accepted by grace. You know what that means for these early Christians is that they cannot earn, they can't supplement, they can't even take away from this thing called the gospel. You can ignore the news or you can reject the news, but you cannot change it. You could ignore the fact that back in August, fires swept through Lahaina, Maui, but you cannot change that news. You can not change the fact that a dynasty is brewing, that we've got a back-to-back Super Bowl champion. You may not like it. I knew I was going to get the loudest amen of the sermon from these folks right here. You may not like the fact that they keep winning but you can't change the fact that they keep winning. It's just part of history. It's just been what's announced. It's what they have received. Tim Keller writes the gospel. This is so important. It could actually change your perspective on Christianity. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A through Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians And then Christians in the room mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It's more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. Now, if you were here last week, you may be saying to yourself, well, didn't you talk about becoming fully mature, going deeper, moving forward and moving on from the elementary principles of drinking milk, moving on towards the solid foods that he describes earlier in chapter one. The reality is, no. That's not what full maturity looks like according to the Christian life. There is no moving on from the basics of the gospel. There is only deeper in. Only deeper in. Remember that maturity in Christ is not independence. It's more full and free dependence. If the gospel is true that we are accepted by sheer grace, then a humble, joy-filled submission to Christ is how the journey begins. And what Paul is saying to them is, 
Do not be duped by things that seem right to you. This is how you continue. You're accepted by grace through faith. You received the news. You accepted it. It came into your life. It began to transform you. Do not think that there is more, better, bigger, experiential things ahead of you. The gospel is that thing that's going to transform your life. It's what brought you to faith. It's what's going to mature you in your faith. It may appear subtle, but it's actually clearly here in the title that Paul uses in verse 6. Look there. He says, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Question, when you become a Christian, who do you receive? He gives us a very specific answer. Christ Jesus as Lord. Three parts. Break it down for just a moment. Jesus, the historical man from Nazareth who lived and ministered in these backwaters of rural Galilee is also the Christ, the anointed one, the redeemer who they were waiting for. He's also the son of God who's also known as the Lord. Very important. Christ Jesus, I'm going to associate with him as a teacher, a philosopher, somebody who models the way. That option is not open to you. Christ Jesus is not a teacher only. He is not a philosopher only. He is not an intellectual only. He is Christ Jesus, the historical man who is the son of God, who is also the Lord. And the only way that he can redeem and save you, I love the fact that he's my savior, but you know what I don't like as a modern person? That he's got to function as my Lord. What? What does that mean? It means that he gets the reins. That means that he's in charge. Is it because he's a tyrant? No, it means that he is so fully committed to you in love that he says, give it all. Give it all to me. This is how Christianity begins. He's Christ. He's historic. He's Jesus. All of it. He is Lord which means he gets all of me. He can have all of me. Grace is permeating through my story. The great Billy Graham has said, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not given his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord as Savior, and as Master. Paul says, as you have received, how did we receive? By grace. Something was spoken. You can reject it. You can ignore it. You cannot add to it. And Paul says, in the way that you receive, do not assume that I'm now asking Christians to then take up these Christian principles and then pull themselves up throughout the rest of their life, a joyless, duty-filled Christianity. He goes, go back to the beginning. You are my son or daughter because I have saved you. I am Lord. I am Jesus. I am Christ. Fully God to you. Stay there and see what happens in your life and in your heart. This is your foundation. Go deeper in. All right. Part one, foundations. Number two, reflexes. A reflex is this primal gut reaction. And what I'm going to call a spiritual reflex is what your spirit wants to do 
naturally without ever being prompted. No one ever needs to tell my dog, squirrel, right? He knows what's like going on. He's like, boom, right? Whatever this in his heart, little doggy heart, he's going to find that thing. You have to teach him how to do that. It's natural. It's guttural. It's instinctual. We have the same thing in us. Not about squirrels, by the way. Nobody had to teach my children how to say no. Nobody had to teach me how to say no. It's guttural. It's instinctual. In the same way, this deep guttural reaction to the foundation is what you're going to find in your own life and in your own heart. A reaction to grace. No, actually, I don't want it. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. If you bore down deeply enough into the human spirit, this is the guttural reaction you will find. Grace is unnatural in our secular, secular natural world, bent on people succeeding and proving and productivity. We would rather earn it than receive it. We are all searching for glory. This does not mean that we are all searching for a spotlight. But I think what the scriptures are teaching is that it does mean that deep down that I want to control my life. I want to exert my will. I do not want anybody to tell me how to live this thing called life, including God. This is what it means to exert your will, to say no to grace. What you're saying is, I'd rather not receive it. I'd rather prove it and earn it. It's built into who you are. Now, I'm going to break down this longer quote in a couple of different pieces, but this is going to be helpful as we go through these spiritual reflexes. It's written by a professor, a Christian professor by the name of Richard Loveless. Loveless writes this. He says, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. But in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Might seem a little technical. Let me briefly break this down. What this means is that even for Christians... It's easy, it's natural to default away from grace and into proving. Justification is the heartbeat of Christianity. It means that God has declared you righteous in the person of Jesus Christ. You want a right life. You want to be seen fully. You want to be loved. And in the moment that you become a Christian, when the news breaks into your life through the presence of the Spirit of God, you are justified before the Father once and for all. You are considered righteous. This is justification by faith. We love to talk about it. We love to preach it. Sanctification is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life where you are becoming actually righteous. Your heart is being changed. Your heart is being transformed. The Spirit's work in you. Let's make a connection to what he says. Religious things like Bible reading, or prayer, or even church attendance, or even something like your marriage. God uses all of these things to transform people's lives. But what happens when you begin to take hold of those things and to use the gifts he has given you as a tool for your justification? 
and it's subtle and it's slippery and you don't even know you're doing it. But what you do is you wake up in the morning and you say, yeah, 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 theoretically, Jesus has justified me. I'm seen as righteous in his sight, but functionally, I gotta wake up today and prove to the world that I'm worth it. I gotta have a great life. People have to see me all the way through. They gotta see the accomplishment. They gotta see what I look like on the outside. I've gotta have a shiny exterior, even if the interior is not doing so well. I've got to prove to the world that I'm somebody. You have a secular version of that, which doesn't pull in all of the religious tradition. Then you've got a religious version of this that pulls in all the devotion and all the piety and essentially says, this is about me. No joy, no life, no desire to tell anybody about this good person named Jesus Christ because at the center of your experience of Christianity is earning merit and proving. He goes, a lot of Christians understand it in theory, but they are not living it out. Is that you? Is that you? Loveless continues, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Martin Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only grounds for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification. He goes, look, you got to wake up in the morning and you got to believe the gospel that says, I'm accepted. He's done it. The news was announced over my life. For some reason, I have become a follower of Christ. Grace broke into this narrative of earning and proving. I don't have to wake up and earn and prove, but I sure want to. It sure comes natural. It is my gut spiritual reflex to wake up and say, I got to become somebody today. He says, Christians don't know how to wake up and say to their own hearts, stop the proving, stop the earning. There is tremendous freedom if you believe the gospel and it's massaged into your life. I used to need the work. I used to need the relationship. I used to need the zip code. I used to need all of the relational clout that I have. I used to need to be seen, but there is this thing that is stronger and it is what we looked at last week. Christ in the human heart, the hope of glory that can change your life. Does it change your life like this if your spiritual reflex is to lean into productivity? The real answer is no, it won't. And you are justified in a moment. That is the tremendous message of the gospel. But the spiritual reflex, man, it wants to go back. It wants to earn. It wants to prove. It wants to stand up in front of somebody to say, do you see me? But the gospel calls you back and says, I see you. I love you. No more insecurity. No more fear. No more wondering if you've done enough. The gospel is news, man. You can reject it. You can ignore it, but you can't change it. You can't change it. But what we do as Christians is we learn to live into the statement upon your life. You are seen, you are accepted, you are forgiven, you are son or daughter. And you know what we do? We do that as a church. We do that in discipleship and apprenticing under Christ. This is a lifelong journey of rejecting the natural gut spiritual reflex that wants you to go this way when Jesus is inviting you into a new way.
The entire world is tuned in order to undermine the priority of grace in your life. Can I say that again to you? The entire world is tuned to undermine the priority of grace in your life. Jesus described the devil as the prince of this world and the father of lies, which means that the world is designed to help you conveniently ignore and forget about the priority of the gospel and grace, deceiving you with fine-sounding arguments. This is what Paul's saying. The last part of loveless. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Do you feel that insecurity in your life? Because you say to yourself, I thought I believed the gospel. I thought I understood who Jesus was and what he had done for me. And yet what I find in my life is pride and criticism and a domineering spirit, and the temptation or the reality of excluding other people and a hatred of others, all in an attempt to achieve what Jesus wants to give you for free. A secure sense of self and identity. Do you find yourself going into these places, these attitudes, these dispositions, and you go, man, I thought the gospel was supposed to change that in me. Maybe it's because we haven't gone deeper into where you began, the news, the grace, the receiving. Man, we want to help you go deeper into that. Foundations, reflexes, and then lastly, treasures. Look at verse 1. We've worked backwards through this text today. Verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending, says Paul, for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." This is one of the main priorities of this thing called the Christian community or the church, to help one another remain steadfast and like-minded in our efforts to treasure Christ. Part of your role in this church is to help other people love, remain fascinated by, and become preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ. Do you take that as your role in this church? That is your role in this church. If you are a follower of Jesus, he wants us to be united in love so that we would together, keep saying they, doesn't he? He doesn't go you, 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 and you. He goes, they, the community, has got to be united in love so that they can discover that all of the treasures that you are longing for are actually found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the role and the purpose of the church. Your role in this community is to help other people not wander into lesser treasures. That is my great ambition when I come preach for you for 35 minutes on a Sunday. 
is because I know what's going to be confronting you when you leave here is to give you a vision of the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that you say to your own life and in your own heart with one another, there are lesser treasures and they are coming for my affections, but Christ has come for me. I want to pursue him. He has pursued me. I have received grace. I don't want to go after lesser treasures. Tony Reinke, in his book, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in a Media Age, he writes, Christian's high calling is to guard the heart and its loves and desires. The worst trade in the universe is playing in the shallow pools of the world's spectacles instead of diving deep for the treasures of eternal worth. The Christian's battle in this media age can be won only by the expulsive power of a superior spectacle, Jesus. Christ is our safety and our guide in the age of competing spectacles, the age of social media. He is our only hope in life and death, in the age to come and in this media age. Paul says it a couple of times in this letter. He goes, I am working hard. I am contending for your heart and your mind the minds of people who are following Jesus and his goal is that they would be encouraged, that they would be built up and united in love as they remain anchored to Jesus as their ultimate treasure. The best communities refuse to let you wander into lesser treasures. But they carry the spirit of the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he's got 100 sheep. One wanders off. There's 99 still over here. He doesn't ignore the one. He goes, I'm bringing back the one. When Jesus begins to change your life and your mind, this is how you function in your community. I see you. I see you. I know where you're wandering. I know what you're going for. I love you. I'm gonna help restore your love for Jesus so you treasure him. When you treasure him, when you lift him up, when you gaze at his body broken for your sin, when you abide in his presence, the result will always be gratitude. You will start to have this reflex of thanksgiving. Look what Paul said in verse six. He says, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught and overflowing with what? Thanksgiving. Focus on yourself, turn your gaze inward, and you will walk away. The secular reflex will become more attractive. But keep your gaze on Jesus Christ and how much he, what, treasures you. And your heart will remain fast. You'll be able to offer something to other people in your community. The best communities help people treasure Christ. When you stare at him, when he becomes your great preoccupation, when you look at what he's done to bring you into his family, what it costs to make you his own, the result is thanksgiving. Where are you in this grand narrative of foundations, receiving, moving forward in the gospel, going deeper, or have you forgotten? What is the natural reflex of your heart? Can you see it? Are there attitudes and dispositions that just keep flowing out? Maybe they would be remedied if we go back 
to the foundation, that man who is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then lastly, how do you treasure Jesus in an age of spectacle? And you walk together. You say strategic yeses and nos. And you acknowledge that something is coming for your affection. Something is coming for your heart. You want to tune it to Christ, knit it to others, so that you stop looking inward and you begin to have the spirit of thanksgiving. It can happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible love for us and your simple love or the simple message of the gospel. Lord, we want to believe that it's true. That news has been spoken that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Christ who is the Lord. And we want to submit our lives to you. And yet within each of us, no matter if we are followers or if we are learning, if we are longtime Christians or if we are skeptics leaning in, there is that part of us that says, I don't want anything to do with grace. Jesus, come and work in us, change us. Help us to acknowledge that that's there. We don't want theoretical knowledge of justification. We don't want a theoretical knowledge of your love. We don't want a theoretical experience of grace. We need it to break in, change us, and transform us. Take us back to where we began. That's all you've ever asked. Walk with me. I'm the God of mercy. I'm the God of grace. Define yourself in me. I have given myself for you. Jesus, each of us carries a barrier and an obstacle to that experience. So help us to break through even as we fellowship with you through this meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.